Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. I use she or they pronouns. And um, I'm sorry that it's been a minute since episode has come out, and it'll probably stay a little bit slowed down for a little while. It might be an episode a month for a little while. It's not that I've run out of people to interview or subjects that I want to cover. It's that it's um, hard for me to get anything done right now, which I think might be something that might you might identify with as well. Kind of said that the only thing I've managed to accomplish so far in 2021 is talk shit on the internet and not die. And I'm doing very good at both of those things. I have, uh, I have honed my talking shit skills and uh, I'm reasonably good at not dying. One thing that people don't talk about enough with off-grid life and things like that, I spend an awful lot of my time just maintaining the systems that sustain me. I spend a lot of my time trying to fix broken water pumps and learning that the thing is, is when you do everything DIY and you're not particularly skilled, the first time you do something, you probably do it good enough, but good enough often means that it will fall apart before before too long. So I've rewired my electrical system probably seven or eight times. Uh, It seems to be holding good now. My plumbing system, I'm going to be crawling under my house and rewiring my plumbing system a lot. I've had a lot of things freeze and break. And there's just a lot of of uphill learning curve, especially to, to do alone. This week's guest is Adrienne Marie Brown, and I'm very excited to have her on the show. We talk a lot about, well, about emergent strategy, which is a, a conception of strategy, of political strategy, that embraces change and embraces the fact that, well, you can't have one strategy, now can you? And and we also talk a little bit about her work as a podcaster with the podcast, How to Survive the End of the World, which is, yeah, as she points out, that maybe the closest thing there is to a, a direct sister podcast or sibling podcast to this show. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and here's a jingle from another show on the network. One, two, one, two, tune in for another episode of Marooncast. Maroomcast is a down-to-earth black radical podcast for the people. Our host, hip-hop anarchist Simile the RBG and sex educator and crochet artist KLC share their reflections on maroons, rebellions, womanism, life, culture, community, trap liberation, and everyday ratchetness. They deliver fresh commentary with the queer, transgender, non-conforming, fierce, funny, southern girls, anti-imperialist, anti-oppression approach. Poly ad and bullshit. Check out episodes of Marooncast on Channel Zero Network, Buzzsprout, SoundCloud, Google, Apple, and Spotify. All power to the people, all pleasure to the people. Peace. Okay, so if you want to introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and then I guess kind of a a brief introduction to you, you and your work, especially around emergent strategy. Okay. Um, my name is Adrienne Marie Brown. I use uh, she and they pronouns. I am based in Detroit, and I'm the author of um, five books, including Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, 
And almost everything I've written is in some way inspired by Octavia Butler or in touch with Octavia Butler, um, including emerging strategy. So, yeah. Yeah, that was one of the one of the many reasons I wanted to have you on this show was that I, if there's one book that keeps coming up over and over again on this show and pretty much anyone vaguely on the left who cares about what's going on in the world, it's uh, Parable the Sower um, by Octavia Butler. Yes. and. And one of the things that really struck me about your work with Emergent Strategy, the not just the book, but the kind of the concept of Emergent Strategy that I want to talk to you about is basically the thing that I loved. I mean, I loved a lot about Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, but the, the idea of creating this um, essentially religious way of interacting with chaos and change and like embracing those things and learning to use them as our strengths, whether because it's nicer or because it's our only choice it really appealed to me. And then learning that someone was, was taking that out and developing it further into essentially a strategy, both for like political change, but also personal development. I got really excited about it. So I was, I was wondering if you could kind of introduce the basic concepts to listeners who might not know what the hell I'm talking about. That's great. Yeah. So emergent strategy is, it's rooted in many, many things. I think it's, the way that the world works. Um, I feel like it's strategies for getting in right relationship with change. And it, once you understand that change is constant and that you can either be thrown about by change um, and see it as a you know wild chaos that you can never get your footing in, or that you can partner with change. You can begin to shape the changes that happen in your life or in the era that you live in. Um, emergent strategy is for people who are ready to be responsible for shaping change around them. And um, some of the key lineages of it are the scientific concepts of emergence. So mm -hmm. emergence is the way patterns and um, the way, like basically all these patterns arise out of relatively simple interactions and they're very complex patterns, but each of the interactions or each of the relationships are relatively simple. So I think of like a flock of birds, a huge murmuration of birds moving through the air, avoiding predation. And it looks like the most complex, choreographed, beautiful thing, but it's actually this simple system where each bird is paying attention to the five to seven birds right around it and following the subtle cues that they're sending each other. It's time to move left, dip, rise, move right. Um, one of the core questions of emergent strategy was what would it look like if our movements and our species could move in that way? What mm -hmm. would it look like if we could murmurate together? How would we have to trust each other? So adaptation is a big part of that is what does it look like to adapt with intention, not just react to the chaos, but really adapt in ways that keep moving us where we want to get to. Um, and then there's a lot about interdependence. What is the quality of relationships between each of the parts of our systems, between mm -hmm. you and I, between the people in our communities? Um, how do we attend to the relationships? How do we think about decentralization? And I feel like one of the big lessons I've had, both in recent years and in looking back at movements throughout history, is that those that centralize are those that are not able to live as long as they need to live in order to do their best work. Um, that centralization, something about gathering everything around one mind, one idea, one way of being actually weakens us um, as a species. And 
nature shows us that biodiversity and creating more possibilities is actually the way to survive. And so now I think that's a lot of my work is what does it mean for us to be biodiverse in a fecund world? What does it mean for mm-hmm. us to decentralize how we hold power and how we hold responsibility for what happens in our communities? How do we adapt well? I I love all of it. I just eat up all this stuff. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what you're saying about murmurations and the way that um, the way that animals move in nature and the way that you know flocks move and things like that. I was thinking about I've been having some conversations with a couple people around the 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 riot or the insurrection or whatever the hell people call it on January 6th at the Capitol and the way that the right wing crowd moved. And it was so funny to me because like, there's like jokes on Twitter where it's like, we know it wasn't Antifa because there wasn't like a group of gay folks handing out sandwiches and like, there wasn't a medic tent set up and stuff. And, and people present it kind of as a joke, but I realized I was looking at it and I was like, I've been terrified of people being trampled at demonstrations. I've been in militant demonstrations a lot of times and I've never seen it happen. And, and watching that happen, I was trying to figure out what it was. And I think it has to do with what you're talking about, about our side at its best embraces interdependence and chaos and, and change and like, and isn't there as a group of individuals, like people talk about, sorry, this is something I've been thinking about way too much recently. Um, People have been talking about, I grew up being told the left is like the mob. It's like the big mass action where everyone loses their individuality and it's bad chaos and everyone gets hurt. And then that just hasn't been my experience at all yes. in large demonstrations. Yeah. And and then I look at what the right wing does when they all gather to go try and do this thing. And that's what I see. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I just, I've been thinking about yeah. that emergence stuff a lot as relates to that. Yeah. I think that you're, what you're speaking to is like extremely important distinctions, which is when a group comes together who have all been deeply socialized and have bought into their own mm-hmm. supremacy, right? Supremacy is a disconnecting um, energy. It's like you can belong as long as you play along to, by these rules, which are that we are better mm-hmm. than everyone else and we're constantly reinforcing that betterness. But better, you're, then you have to constantly you're reinforcing and finding new ways to be better than, better than, better than. Even to the point that like, I've got to get to the Capitol door before mm-hmm. you do, even if that means stepping over your body in the street. Um, and you pair that with capitalism, which is also the constant growth, constant bettering, constant one-upping, right? Constant showing what you have. And there's so much... Um, trying to think of even how, what the word is like that sense of like, this is just ours. Mm-hmm. This is mine. This is, our, you know, and I feel like when you go to spaces that the left has organized, there's such a care at the center of it. Like we are there, be, not because we're just like, I'm here to fight somebody or I'm here to dominate, or we don't even necessarily believe it's like our way is the right mm-hmm. way. It's more like we, we want to find a way to be loving and caring with each other. We don't think we've ever gotten the chance to experiment with that at scale Mm -hmm. as a species. At the current scale that we're at, everything we're doing is constantly trying to defend ourselves and care for ourselves under the conditions of oppression. And it means that when we come together, I I always see the same thing. I'm like, are we going to be safe? But then people are taking such care of each other from the street medics to the people who are watching after the kids to people who are like, I brought four extra signs so everyone would have something (laughs) to carry. People... Mm -hmm. 
I always notice is that people bring extra water and extra food. And like one of my favorite things and one of the reasons why I've always been such a stand for direct action is that those spaces tend to be such um, active spaces of love and care and precision. And like, let's attend to each other and attend to the work we're up to. And, um, you know, we can go overboard with <laughs> with how, <laughs> how attentive we are to everything. Um, because I think it's part of us responding to the trauma of living in a society that so actively does not care for us. Mm -hmm. And so watching those people who actively don't care try to come together and assert themselves as victims. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not funny. It's actually quite sad. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just sort of like you have so much power, you abuse it such so much so that you end up abusing yourselves and you're, you're continuously cutting yourself off from what is the best part of being alive, which is the nature of togetherness. And that's what I want to study is like the, the scholar, I've called myself a scholar of belonging. Mm -hmm. What does it actually look like to belong, to be part of something larger than yourselves, of ourselves, and in that belonging to take responsibility for our survival, for how we do, how we be with each other. I'm so glad I brought this up then because you just managed to finally articulate this thing that me and my friends have been trying to wrap our head around for since we saw it happen in January 6th. So you, you mentioned yeah, it's, yeah. trying to trying to do this at scale and how that's something that's somewhat unprecedented by human society. And yeah, and I, that, go ahead. I just yeah. want, how do we, how do we do that? And one of the things that really interests me about your work and about the work that I, I care about is that it's embracing diverse strategies rather than saying like, this is the one way that we do it. So obviously when I say, how do yeah. we do that? I don't mean because you are our leader, but you know, that? instead, <laughs> yeah. Like how do, how do we, how do we learn to weave different strategies, different ethical systems, different uh, ideas about how to change things? How do we weave that into a coherent force? Yeah. I mean, it, this is the question of, of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. I think, <laughs> you know, is is like, how do we do this thing? Um, this is why I'm a, you know, when Walida Imarisha created that term visionary fiction, I was like, yes, that's that's what I'm about, is trying to figure out how we do everything mm -hmm. that we've never really experienced in our lifetimes. Um, the best I have so far is what I've witnessed when bringing people together for the emergent strategy immersions or bringing people together for a process of like, how do we do community together, beloved community? Like, what does it actually look like to practice that? And some of the elements of that are that people are really invited to bring their whole selves um, into wherever they are, mm -hmm. that there is a sense of organized care, that we don't just leave it up to, you know, hoping everybody just figures it out, but there's a, there's a real ability to name. Here are the needs in this community, the access needs, the food needs, the water needs, the timing needs. We need breaks. We need gender liberated bathrooms. Here's all the things that we need mm -hmm. in order to fully be here. And then we have to let people unleash what they have to bring to the table. And this is where I think, you know, when I started writing Emergent Strategy, I was onto something that I'm not sure I even had articulated fully to myself, but it was my critique of how movements and nonprofit industrial complex was playing out, which is we were often trying to bring people into space where only a portion of them was welcome mm -hmm. and where we weren't asking them to truly bring their offer. Like we were like, can you just come be a number in the strategy that we've already figured out? Or can you come play your position? Like you show up in the debate exactly as we expect you to, and we'll say what we expect to say. And, 
we'll, we'll move forward with the lowest common denominator of a solution, which no one's actually passionate about. Mm-hmm. And like, nothing will actually change. Philanthropy will keep paying us. It'll <laughs> go on and on forever and ever. And for me, I was like, I'm really not interested in playing the game anymore. I really want to see what happens when you unleash people to come together. And what I see is, what I witnessed is people very quickly are like, how do we hold really authentic, effective accountability processes in real time together? Mm -hmm. How do we offer each other the rituals we need to really relinquish harm and trauma that has built up in our community? Here we have tons of ways to care for each other. We created this exercise um, and when I say we, is one of the groups that was that was participating, created this exercise that became something we did in everything else we ever did. And it was healing stations where we just said, everyone gets 10 minutes, go to your bag and pull out whatever you find to be healing mm-hmm. and create a healing station with your small group. And 10 minutes later, the room would have transformed into this place that felt like we can do anything because we've got vibrators and cigarettes and tarot decks and incense and medicines and tinctures and like anything, you know, and I was like, y'all just walk around with everything you need. So many books, (laughs) you know, so many um, ways that people are like, this is how I care for myself. And I want to, I want to offer it. I want to leave it here for other people to access and have, have contact with Mm -hmm. that kind of those moves, watching how quickly community did know not only how to take care of itself, but how to hold each other accountable and how to stay together. I was blown away. So I think a lot of the answer is we need to actually be willing to get into smaller formations and really practice being with mm-hmm. each other and let that proliferate, right? I think so often we're, we're oriented around like, how do we build a mass movement that's all thinking the same way t- to strike and to have this impact? I really love the idea of united fronts where people mm-hmm. are all in their political homes, united around some common organizing principles, but allowed to be their own weird, magical way of being and care for themselves the way they need to. Um, this is also why I identify as a post-nationalist, because I, I do think that the American experiment is literally at a scale that doesn't function. Like there's, it's it, the scale is too big for there to be mm-hmm. any kind of real, um, you know, something that's not just a brand of togetherness, but that's an actual practice of togetherness. Um, you know, 70 million people, whatever, are committed to voting for white supremacy in the country. Yeah. Like, that's that's not, you know, that's not a viable strategy for how we move forward at this <laughs> point. I love the idea of secession, mm-hmm. radical secessions. I love the idea of the Zapatistas mm-hmm. claiming territory within territory with indigenous leadership would be like a dream come true to me. Um, I love, you know, people who are living off the grid and finding ways to divest from the American experiment mm-hmm. already. Um, so, you know, I, I think all of those are are some of the ways. Yeah. And I think right now with the pandemic unfolding and I think a lot more of us are like, oh, I do need like literal community, mm-hmm. not social media community, not conference community, but I need like literal people I can call on that I could walk to their house that I can count on to hold boundaries around safety. Like I, we need those things. And I think that's the answer. I always think community is the answer. No, that, that makes sense. And that's one of the main focuses on like the, one of the main points of the show is to talk about how preparedness is more of a community thing than an individual thing. Um, Absolutely. So one of the, Absolutely. one of the things you're saying about, yeah, cause individually we just hoard. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, 
one of the things you're saying about because earlier pointing out that direct action is a really good way to create a sense of belonging and that's something that I've been watching happen in a lot of people who've been kind of radicalized to the left within the last year since the the uprisings last summer uh, last summer started and and what you're talking about about creating these moments of belonging I definitely I think for my own experience it has been those moments of you know facing down a very powerful force together and the way that um the way that you figure out who has your back when like literally just to tell a random bullshit story at one point i was like part of some march and you know the cops wanted to arrest me because i may or may not have been burning an american flag and things like that and and i thought all my like such and such yeah i thought all my like punk friends were going to protect me and then half of them were just gone and then all of these people I'd kind of written off as like, this is a while ago, I was, I was young. I'd kind of written off as hippies, like some of the like older, I was like, oh, they're probably uh-huh. liberals uh-huh. or whatever, just surrounded me. And we're like, hey, just so you know, we're here to physically protect you from the police arresting you. They're definitely talking about arresting you. And it was just this nice moment of like realizing that in moments of conflict or even not necessarily con- conflict, but moments of tension, you find out what community looks like and And maybe that's what COVID is unfortunately doing for all of us about how we have to suddenly develop mutual aid networks at a scale that we never did previously in the United States. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. And I I think that Octavia Butler taught us this in in all of her works. Mm -hmm. It was like, you never know who you're going to be in the apocalypse with. (laughs) Like you, you have plans, you, Mm -hmm. you think you know what they look like and feel like, but you really don't know who's going to have your back under that pressure. And in some ways, I think it's because people don't even know themselves if they'll, what they'll be capable of under the pressure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this pandemic has revealed for people so much about what they're like under pressure. Cause some people under pressure have, really turned inward and disconnected from community and are, you know, really in a deep, lonely, isolated place. And I see that happening um, with people that I I didn't expect it from, Mm -hmm. you know? And then I see other people who are really finding ways to weave themselves into community. um, And there's not a right or wrong here. It's just very fascinating to see who turns towards others and who Mm -hmm. doesn't. Um, and what we need, right? I thought I was just like, I'm a loner. I like mm-hmm. to be by myself. You know, I'm a, I'm a, that part of Octavia Butler's life always appeals to me. I'm like, mm-hmm. she just was by herself, like just chilling and writing sci-fi. <laughs> but I spent a few months all alone and I was like, I don't like this. I want to be with the love of my life. Mm-hmm. I want to be with my friends. I want to be with my parents. <laughs> I want to like be with people who can lay hands on me when I'm sick. Um, yeah. and like have my back, you know, physically rub my back. You yeah. know? Like, I just was like, I that part, physical touch felt so important to me. And I'm watching our communities now. I'm like, there's mutual aid, but there's also just like the need of being a body alive in this time. And like, what do we, what do, what are the very fundamental needs, which I also love about Octavia's writing. Mm-hmm. It's like, what are, there are some very fundamental human needs that we share. And then there are beliefs, destinies that pull us forward. And what you're looking for in your community is the folks who can balance those two things, mm-hmm. who are like, we can find ways to attend to the very um, non-negotiable physical needs, and we can align ourselves around a destiny. And it doesn't have to be a perfect alignment where we all say the same words and we're all culted out, <laughs> but there has to be some sense of like, oh, I want to be in communities that hold each other accountable. 
I want to be in communities that are abolitionists, mm-hmm. where we're not trying to dispose of or lock anyone away. I want to be in communities that really love the earth, like at a primal, this is home level, mm-hmm. you know, and so on and so forth. And I'm like, I meet those kind of people actually more often than you'd think. And writing books has been my way of, you know, go, who do you, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, who is out there that is potentially my people? I feel very excited right now by like just I'll say this the other day was Valentine's Day and I often am like ignore that completely capitalism whatever but this time I was like you know there's a lot of lonely people out there let me just try something and I had a dream about it that was like posting a looking for love Mm -hmm. post but it was basically like for emergent strategists and pleasure activists and people who like really are like riding on this like Octavia wave Mm -hmm. right and it was like over a thousand people wrote in that they were like, I'm looking for love. And those are the kind of principles I want at the center of Mm -hmm. it. And it made me so excited because I was like, this is what we, there's enough people now that are at least looking at each other. Like I may not, you know, stamp emergent strategy on my forehead, but I I do want to be in right relationship with change. Mm -hmm. And I want to be in accountable relationship with pleasure. I want to claim, you know, my power in this lifetime. I want to take responsibility for community. I'm like, there's enough of us now um, that we can fall in love with each other and like <laughs> have like, you know, radical families mm-hmm. and like all that kind of stuff. Just, you know, we are a generation too. Like we come from generations that held the ground for something outside of capitalism, something outside of nationalism, something outside of colonialism, militarism, all those things. And now we are that generation that's just articulating ourselves mm-hmm. again and again and again. Like, we're here. We love each other. We're taking care of each other. And as this, as a, you know, I think our folks are so brilliant because they're like, this is not the first pandemic. Mm-hmm. This is not the last pandemic. You know, like we have our folks who came through the HIV AIDS pandemic and are now here and teaching us inside of this moment. And we will teach people the next one. And yeah, right. Like we, we keep going. So. Yeah. One of the things that people I've talked to have, have brought up a lot that I've been really excited about is um, excited about the wrong word, but uh, the fact that like the apocalypse isn't an event as much as like this um, cycle ongoing process thing that comes and goes yeah. like, you know, and, and actually, I mean, even just to talk about Octavia Butler's work again, from a fangirly point of view, like yes. one of the reasons that her work was so important was in my experience, I'm not incredibly well read. It was the first slow apocalypse in the kind of yes. still recognizably an apocalyptic story of people leave their homes and go on the road and figure out how to start a new society. But it was a, yes. a slow apocalypse. And that's something that I think we need more of just out of one of the hardest things that I've struggled with uh, in my personal life is and this is awful because I sound like chicken little, but it's trying to convince people that we are in a, an apocalypse. Like we are in a, a yes, slow apocalypse exactly. right now. We're in yeah. It. And people are waiting yes. for the bomb to drop. So they're like, Oh, it's not the apocalypse. And I'm like, well, but what, it, what do you need? Like, like failed infrastructure? Um, you know, uh, <laughs> how badly does it have to be? Right. Yeah. And I'm actually curious. Yeah. I've, I've been meaning to try and ask people, well, actually, no, I want to, uh, to bring it back to the Octavia Butler stuff. And then you, um, you also write fiction and you also focus on, I've seen a lot of your work around trying to present visionary fiction and present futures. And that's something, and 
Yes. I'd, I'd like to hear more about, I'm just always trying to ask people about, because obviously it's very close to me personally, but how do you... Well, s- you write them too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what it, like, what is the... What is the importance of of writing futures? Like, what is the importance of imagining futures? Yes. You know, I'm, I just listened to... Um, I got to read a bunch of Octavia Butler's work for this NPR Throughline mm-hmm. podcast, and they include a lot of interview with her. And she's talking about how important it was for her to write herself in. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I wanted to write myself into the narrative, into the story, and... I think for so many of us, when we look back, we can see either stories of our trauma or stories or or like the gaps, the erasure, where our stories should be and they're not. And I live in Detroit and Detroit, you drive around and if you know what you're looking at, right, if if you've seen like maps or pictures of what it looked like 40 years ago to now, you can see that it's a city full of gaps, full of spaces where there used to be homes, like literally on a block. It'll be like, huh, this is kind of random. There's just two houses on this block. It used to be seven, right? But time and the economic crisis and other things disappeared those homes. And I feel like history can look like that for those of us who are queer or trans mm-hmm. or Black or Latino, Indigenous, et cetera. We can look back and be like, where were we? Where were we? And white supremacy and nationalism and other things erased the, the, the full story of us so that we are left with just the trauma that we've been able to unveil. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so writing futures, writing ourselves into the future is to me a way that we go ahead and stake a claim that like we are here now imagining ourselves and in the imagining we are creating room for something different to exist. And whenever I am engaging in fiction, uh, writing as a practice, I really feel like I am up to something that the biggest thing maybe that I'm ever up to mm-hmm. um, is understanding that the whole world that we currently live in came out of someone's imagination. All of the constructs, the way that I experience my own gender, the way that I experience my skin, the way that I experience my size, the way that I experience my desirability, my worthful worthiness, you know, there's so many fundamental aspects of myself that are just miraculous because that's what everyone is but they've been so complicated and I've had to fight to feel like I deserve to exist. And that fight is because someone imagined that I did not. And they imagine that, you know, all I was this morning thinking about all the black children that we've lost to police violence. I'm like, they're all dead because someone imagined that they were dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, imagination is a very, very powerful drug, a very powerful practice. And to me, I'm like, if we want something new, we have to actually imagine what does it look like? When I say defund the police, what am I imagining happens when there's a domestic violence incident Mm -hmm. on the street? And does that mean, am I imagining myself willing to go down and intervene? Mm -hmm. Am I imagining myself calling community mediators to come on over right now, something's going on? You know, what what do I imagine happens? Because if I can't imagine it, I'm definitely not gonna be able to invite tons of people who are used to the punitive system (laughs) to come join me on another path. The imagination to me is how we create the future that we want to be and how we make sure that we're not absent from it. So, and I have to give a lot of props here to disability justice communities mm-hmm. because I feel like I'm just now starting to understand how how much I learned from disability justice communities around this. But they were like, if we're not in the room and y'all plan something, 
and it doesn't have a wheelchair ramp and it doesn't have an accessible bathroom and it's like chemical scent overload or whatever, it's because we weren't in the room. So you didn't even imagine us there. You did not imagine us. You just didn't think about us at all. We were just not part of it. And as a facilitator, the number of times that that happened, I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I just did it. And it's like, no, that's unacceptable. Like, now I'm like, how do I make sure that people are in the room where imagination happens? How do I make sure that they're in the pages where imagination Mm -hmm. happens? And um, because then you, you end up with a future that is accessible, that is equitable, that is pleasurable Mm -hmm. that is sustainable right because we're all there dreaming yeah yeah the (laughs) this happens sometimes when i interview guests and i'm like instead of having like a good especially my year of reasonable isolation i've lost some of my social skills so people say things and i'm just like thinking about it you know instead of having like an immediate response (laughs) i'm like i i would love to do a study on the social skills we've we've all lost yeah Yeah. (laughs) because i'm just sort of like uh yeah. yeah. No, that I'm also having, I have that experience all the time these days. Where I'm just like, everything moves slower now. Yeah. And I'm thinking about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, in some ways I'm like glad because I'm like, well, I don't have an immediate response to what you're just saying because I'm just thinking about it. And I'm like, I just want to sit with that. Like that's, you know, that touches on something that I've thought about before, but I haven't, and I've tried to address in my own work, but I haven't succeeded at yet. And I have, haven't given enough attention to. Um, yeah. To, to, to talk about something else. Um, I very embarrassingly, yeah. after I named my podcast, live like the world is dying, uh, Googled, um, I was like, well, what if I called it something like how to, cause I always do things that are like how to, or like, you know, whatever. How to. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> do you want to talk about your own podcast with a very similar title? But, um, <laughs> yes. I mean, our podcasts are definitely siblings in the territory mm-hmm. of content. Yeah. No? Um, yeah. So I have a, I have two podcasts. Mm-hmm. Actually now I have three podcasts. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I'm an unstoppable podcast machine. So um, <laughs> I really love the art of podcasting. You know, there's something beautiful about just sitting and having a conversation, listening to a conversation. So my first podcast, my longest running one is called How to Survive the End mm-hmm. of the World. And it's with my sister, Autumn. Um, and we're both just obsessed with Octavia, obsessed with apocalypse mm-hmm. and like, how do we turn and face um, the fact that we are in apocalypse and that we have been through many um, and that apocalypse is actually a moment you can harness for change. Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite um, a powerful portal if we harness it that way. So there's a lot of philosophy and theoretical conversations mixed in with like hard skill mm-hmm. offers. Um, so that one is, is kind of a blast, you know, it, for me, it's felt very liberating to just turn directly and face apocalypse and, and just get to be in conversations that are all like related to what mm-hmm. is. Um, and then I do the Octavius Parables podcast with Toshi Regan, where we're reading the Parable of the Sower chapter by chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, we just finished that first season. Now we're going to head into Parable of the Talents, and then we'll keep going with Octavius' work. Cool. Just um, we're, we're like, even though only two of her books are called Parables, they're all parables in a way. So, um, and then Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute just uh, last week launched our podcast, which is the three kind of core collective members take turns interviewing different people who are what we see as like living emergent strategy in the world. And we're just examining, like building basically a a set of audio case studies for people to listen to of like, what does it look like to practice emergent strategy in all these different realms of movements? Okay. Um, I admit the, the how to survive the end of the world one, 
it people have yeah. been you know that more and more i think people for some strange reason everyone's really into prepping right now um it's hard to hard to figure out why <laughs> but um actually it's, no idea yeah. why um mysterious and I, I i like that there is that there is other stuff out there and i was wondering if you had oh yeah uh, your own thoughts about like where people can find stuff about whether individual community or social preparation or like how, how else people can get involved. So we have brought on, um, a series of guests last Mm -hmm. year. I was away on sabbatical and my sister did, I think the best episodes of the (laughs) (laughs) entire podcast without Mm -hmm. me, which were, it was a apocalypse survival series. Mm -hmm. And each of the guests are people who have their own work and their own lives. So there's a group called queer survival um, uh, queer nature that they basically blew our minds, blew our minds. And it was just very tangible stuff on like, how do you think under the pressure mm-hmm. of crisis? And they do trainings, they do offerings. Um, and then Leah Penniman came on, um, uh, from soul fire farm and was really talking about like, how do we reorient our relationship to food? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, what happened when the pandemic went down is everybody's like, run to the store, buy everything frozen and canned, <laughs> stick that in your house. And like, I'm like, so basically you're prepared to give up even having access to any organic, fresh food. Um, and that's your plan mm-hmm. for how you're going to survive. Like, what does that mean? Right. And I feel like listening to someone like Leah Penniman is like, what does it instead look like? to begin to organize ourselves around farms, around food growth, around the cycles of, mm-hmm. of planting and gardening and growing. Um, I'm hoping that that becomes one of the next iterations that emerges from this pandemic crisis is that people are like, okay, we were not fully ready mm-hmm. um, to actually be growing and thinking about food as a community. That's something we want to be um, orienting ourselves towards. I know that for me, that's something I'm thinking about is, do I have the first clue about how to grow my own food if I wanted to? Because I like vegetables. Mm-hmm. How would I do that? Yeah. You know? So I just started, I'm now growing cilantro and lavender, mm-hmm. um, which is not something I could survive on, but it is like a move in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I have aloe and I have other things, but I'm like, what does it look like to actually like think about a season and put things in the ground and mm-hmm. like how much food would it take for me and my partner to live? How much will we be able to contribute? One of the things I love that I feel like I learned from from the conversations with um, Leah, but with other farmers, black farmers, Derek Cooper, other folks, is like everything that we grow is actually immediately abundant. Mm-hmm. Like if you're doing it, if you're yeah. in right relationship with whatever it is you're growing, you end up with more than you could ever need. And that's why so many farmers end up doing all kinds of cooperative efforts of sharing their food out to other people because you get so much I love that as a problem and as a challenge for us. It's like, could we deal with the abundance that would come if we actually all mm-hmm. gave a portion of our time and attention to growing food directly from land? So that's one of the things I'm, that's like one of my next horizons um, is like inspired by the Soul Fire Farms community. It's like, what does it look like to actually get our hands dirty in a different cool. way? Yeah, I um. Yeah. I when when all this happened I was like I live on land that is technically a farm and I consider myself to not have a green thumb at all and yeah and yeah. I've like you know the few times I've tried to grow food it's failed so I've convinced myself that I will never successfully grow food yeah. and so you're like see I yeah exactly <laughs> and which is funny because I think that I'm capable of like almost anything because I'm so obsessively DIY that I like I'm 
you know, in a house I built and I've learned plumbing and electrical since the pandemic started so that I could make my house meet my needs and, and all of these things. But I'm like, I'm convinced that growing food is entirely just magic that is beyond me. And, but what I've decided to do personally is I'm going to start mushroom cultivation because I'm like, well, this fits my, like, I live in the forest. Everyone else lives in like, you know, elsewhere in the sun. And I'm like, I'm in the forest. Everything is dark and rainy. And, you know, trying to play to my strengths while still, but then there's a thing where it's like, I don't even envision as much as I talk about my, my isolation, I still live with landmates. Right. I'm, and I imagine that come crisis, we continue to help each other. And so I'm like, well, I live with people who know how to grow food. So I will focus on learning how to fix the, um, the rainwater catchment and things like that. Exactly. Like there's a way to be of use. And I mean, well, two things Mm -hmm. are happening right now. One is, I have my first mushroom log out on my deck. Uh-huh. So we, you and I are mycelium <laughs> yeah. familia. Um, and I'm very excited mm-hmm. about it. Um, but same thinking mm-hmm. is I'm just like, I, I can grow mushrooms. Like I'm in a place yeah. where like there's enough condition for mushroom growing. Um, and then I feel the same way, right? That I'm like, even if I never get great at growing food, if I'm in community with people who do grow mm-hmm. food, but I have other skills to bring to the table, then that's great. And one of the things I'm always worried about is like, is my only skill talking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, do I still, do I have other, ta- you know, like, and then, you know, like, no, facilitation mm-hmm. is a skill. Mediation is a skill. That's something you can offer to a community. I do doula work. That's a skill. Mm-hmm. But I'm always looking at like, you know, I'm of value in the current conditions. How would I be of value in future conditions? Right. And I want to make sure that whatever I'm developing in myself, I would be, a community member that people would be like, you're a value to us. Um, And not just because of what you do, but how you show up, how you are. Right. uh Like I I would love to have such value to my community that even if I can't do anything, because I have arthritis Mm -hmm. that is just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So Toshi and I talk about this often that like, if the community all had to run for it, we wouldn't be running for it. So we would be like, okay, we'll sit and hold down the fort and like, distract them and point them in another direction <laughs> and that'll be our usefulness <laughs> or whatever it is like you know but but be i think everyone should be thinking about that question mm-hmm. like, how can i be of use in community how do i understand my usefulness how do i understand the relationships i'm in not transactionally mm-hmm. but in a sense of mutual aid in a sense of we all need we all have to give how do we do that well with elegance with grace you know yeah. Yeah. And the usefulness question, it comes up so much when we talk about disability and the apocalypse, like you're talking about. And I really like the way that you phrased, yes. you phrased it, how, how you come to interactions is also part of our usefulness. And, you yes. know, and, and then there's even stuff around like, you know, I've friends who, uh, through like, sort of like no fault of their own or whatever, have, have, um, let's go with spiky personalities. Right. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet we, I think it's like, partly it's a challenge to figure out how we can be useful, but it's also partly a challenge to figure out the usefulness, like w- what people around you bring to you. And so like, for me, it's like, okay, yes. my friends who are like, maybe really hard to get along with in facilitated consensus meetings because they're uh, opinionated and angry and like often because the world has done horrible things to them. Things and to them. yes. And yet, like for me, I, I kind of secretly enjoy like learning to help help those people point themselves, be like, ah, you have all of this anger. Here's this institution that needs yes. destruction. How would you go about destroying yes. it? You know, and um, like, how would you do it? I love that, yeah. Margaret, because I I just 
um, turned in the final draft of my next book, which mm-hmm. is called Holding Change, The Way of Emergent Strategy, Facilitation, and Mediation. Cool. And there's a whole section on there on like, quote unquote, problem participants. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was noting in there is like, every single person who shows up in the space as a problem, whatever kind of problem they are, if you can harness the energy that they're bringing in, they're often the most effective people. Mm-hmm. If they're coming to the space, <laughs> right? You should be able to harness and move that energy somewhere. But particularly the grumpy, grouchy, curmudgeonly, <laughs> you know, this isn't working. Often those are the most visionary people in the room. And what's happening is that they are hurt mm-hmm. by how it's all going down. You know, they're like, why are we not free yet? Why is it going like this? Like, why aren't we doing a better job? And I'm like, harnessing that energy could free and save the world, yeah. right? So I always keep a couple of curmudgeonly grumpy people close by <laughs> um, just to keep me honest and to keep me like motivated. Um, I think uh, running up on time, um, how can uh, how can people find out more about your work? Um, you know, go to akpress.org mm-hmm. to buy the books there. I prefer people buy them straight from AK, um, which is a, a amazing people's press. Um, and I'm on Instagram. That's where I'm like a person, mm-hmm. you know, on social. That's <laughs> the place where I choose. I mostly put pictures of things that I think are beautiful um, or cool. And then I have a website, adriamariebrown.net, where I blog and I keep an archive of the interviews I do. So this will eventually live there. So, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please tell people about it. Like first and foremost, the way to help the show is to tell people about it in person or online. And, you know, I always go on about the algorithms that run the world and how we can influence them. And, you know, and it's kind of shitty to just sit around and try and influence algorithms. But if you like or subscribe or post about this or review it or whatever on on whatever platforms you listen to it, uh, it, it helps far more than it should it it helps bring it up into other people's feeds and it helps people more find more people find out about it and all of the support that i've been getting for the show uh especially seeing people post about it on social media and things like that and you know people i know telling me that they like it is kind of the reason that i'm continuing going with it right now i'm, I'm very low energy these days and that'll swing back around i'm sure um, but hearing that it's useful to people is matters to me and it, it makes me feel like I'm not <laughs> wasting my time. So thank you all. And also you can support the podcast more directly by supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com slash Margaret Kiljoy. There's not a ton of stuff that you get like that's a, ex- exclusive, except that I do ostensibly a monthly zine that I mail out to people. It's also very far behind uh i point to you know the world and hold that up as my excuse which is getting kind of old for myself but so it goes and i do try and post stuff there as much as i can and also try and send out presents to my patreon supporters as much as i can in particular though i would like to thank hugh and dana and chelsea and eleanor mike Starro. Cat J, The Compound, Shane, Christopher, Sam, Natalie, Willow, Kirk, Hoss the Dog, Nora, and Chris. I, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of support that I've been getting, and I've been able to use that to hire a transcriptionist, and now also 
um, potentially get more help. Like the, the show might end up collectivizing, who knows, we'll see how it goes. Um, in which case me having bad mental health times won't be as much of a holdup and that'll be good for everyone. And so thank you to my supporters for helping that make, helping that look like it might become a possibility. Anyway, I hope you all are doing as well as you can with everything that's going on and I'll talk to you soon.